Well, I want to say Czech, Smachnego, Dziękuję. Some of you know I was in Poland and seeing our work there and uh, just had a week and, and picked up the language. It's just, you know, um, no. Those are the only three words I know. Czech means either hello or goodbye. Smachnego uh, is something you say before a meal. Um, everyone says it. It's just a polite way of saying, I think, good food, good to eat, something like that. Um, and then Dziękuję is thank you. I want to tell you, I want to thank you as well for allowing me and Paul Bierhaus, our chairman over the Missions Commission, for the opportunity to do what we did this last week. I got to see firsthand a ministry that has for the last eight years to Mike and Mary Snuffer and many other people has impacted um, really a whole city. But it's also now beginning to impact the country through these English camps, and we were able to be in the city prior to that. And there, I'm not going to go, I, could, uh, I don't want to take too much of my sermon time, but I want to tell you, we're going to tell you more about it. And if you've been a part of Poland in any way in the past, we're going to bring everybody together, because I truly believe that through just a few things, um, some financial things, some other things, we could move a ministry light years ahead. So be praying about that. Let's pray. Father, What a great and good God you are. I just would pray right now that you would, through your Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to to meet with us and to speak through your scripture and these words that you've put on my heart. And For me and for everyone here, God, may we leave here knowing that in some way you've touched our hearts and spoken to us and We have a better idea of who you are and who we are and how we can live this incredible life you've given us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. On March 23rd, 1775, during a time of great patriotic passion in our country, a determined 39-year-old, a radical-thinking attorney, he addressed the Virginia Convention. And he wasn't able to keep any longer um, this passion he had for freedom silent. And so sounding more really like a prophet of God than even a patriot for his country, he announced in front of them, if we wish to be free, we must fight. I repeat it, sir. We must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. It is vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. These gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has already begun. Our brothers are already in the field. Why stand here, we idle? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Those are passionate words of a courageous man who looked out at a group of people and said, no longer can we allow ourselves to be controlled by others, but we need to allow for this God, Almighty God, to be the one to allow all people to know freedom. And something was birthed in the hearts of people there that day and through that movement that began to spread a freedom with regard to a form of government. 
that had never been known before. And that's a good thing, isn't it? But there's a far better thing that we are about. There's something even more powerful than even governmental freedom. There is a freedom that comes that can only come through a relationship that is a personal one with a God who has made himself known through Jesus and with a walk with this Jesus in intimacy that allows for him to live in us so that we grow up and become all that he wants us to be and we begin to know the freedom of living in that love and walking in that love. So one day... The Apostle Paul, he hears news that these people that he had been visiting, these cities that he visited through Galatia, he finds out that the freedom that they had been given is now being taken away from them. He can hardly believe it. So he writes a letter. And in that first part of the letter, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Which is really no gospel at all. I said it before, let me say it again. And he, he repeats this line twice in the book of the letter of Galatians. If anybody is preaching a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And then a little later he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves again be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Stand with all that you have. Give me liberty or give me death. I met with people in Poland, some who for just 20 years now have experienced freedom from control, from a, a, a communist regime, from a sense of having things ra- rationed to them, where they would go to the store and wait and hope they could get something, where they would move into a new place, a, a married couple, and they would hope they could get furniture. And, and when the day came, they could get their ration card. They would go there, and whatever furniture was there, that they were just thankful to get. And that's all changed now. People have the ability to own their own land and and to take the things that they've worked for. And there's a freedom there that allows for them to to begin to prosper and get things that they want. There was also a fear, this fear of, of sharing something from their heart or saying something against the government. And just in case they said something wrong, someone might report them and they could be thrown into jail. They could have consequences that they didn't ever plan on. 20 years and they've been experienced this freedom. I can tell you that they would fight for that. They've tasted it. But what happens in the Christian experience, in the spiritual life, it's so subtle. It it begins to, over time, it's real easy to begin to move out of the grace and the freedom and all that God calls us to. It's so easy to begin to lose the firmness of our stance and, and to begin to allow ourselves, because of the patterns that we have of our own sin, because of the patterns of our own pride, because of our own fear, to begin to get shackled again and to live into spiritual slavery. The first part of this message, when you look at some of these these verses here, Paul is moving to a final summary. And he wants to once again, in his summary, it's like he cannot underline, underscore, embolden, put in large enough letters his heart desire for these people. So in verse 11, if you look at chapter 6, as we get to the very end here, he writes, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. It's not even that he's trying to write large letters so that he can necessarily even underscore a point. If you remember, when he came to this area of Galatia, he had to go through, the, through a bunch of swamps where it was believed that there was probably many mosquitoes and in some way either got malaria or got some kind of illness. This illness that he contracted eventually went into his eyes. So that if you read in Galatians chapter 4, 12 through 16, he says, you remember my visit, I'd become ill. 
My vision impaired. He, said, he reminds him, if you could have done so, you would have what? You would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. The marks of his love to bring the gospel to these people, one of the marks was that his vision had now been impaired. And so he grabs the pen and he says, you know, to his, 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 the, the person, the scribe who is writing it, give me the pen, I'm writing this now in my own language because I want people to know this truth. Don't ever let yourself become enchained and yoked to slavery, spiritually, to a rule-keeping, behavior modification kind of life with God. Live free. And so, he writes these words in verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. He's writing with his own pen here. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh, which is your own abilities, your own strength. It's like a parent who boasts about their child and how what a great athlete they are, and as a result, they feel good about themselves. And they're living on something in, in someone else. And it may be that their desire for their being accomplished in something even is causing pain and everything else in their life, but they can't even see it because what they're putting on them is all about their own need. And he says, so not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key verse, verse 14. What are you going to boast in? through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. This is the only rule. And even to the Israel of God, because that's the true Israel, the true Abrahamites. Verse 17, finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Verse 14, the primary question is this. Where's your confidence? What do you brag about with regard to your spiritual life? Is it in God? Or is it in you? Is it what God has done? It is what God is doing? Is it in what God will do? Or is it in what you've done and what you're doing? And all that you hope to do. Another way to put this is, where's your security? In a moment, we're going to look at what I call marks of spiritual slavery. People who have imprisoned themselves to a a form of rule-keeping, following after God and his approval in that way. But there's another way to say this. It's not just the marks of, of, of spiritual slavery. Another way to say this is, where do you draw your security? Are you secure in God's love? You know, a person who's really secure in the love of, of someone has a, just a deep confidence, and there's a freedom in that relationship. When a person comes to the realization and understanding that their boast is in God and His love for them, it's not just something in your head, but when it sinks down into your heart, things change. You ever notice people are insecure? People who are insecure have this need. They have a need to impress you, right? 
A person can talk about being confident. In fact, it could be a CEO, it could be a custodian, it could be a supervisor, it could be a salesperson. It could be any different kind of person, husband, wife, father, mother. Insecure people, whether they know it or not, if you just don't pay even attention to their words, but you watch in a sense how they live, they have this need to impress you. Because they need to be impressing someone so that they get your approval. And so when you get their approval, it's all about what they've done. And so when they can talk enough about either titles or names that they drop or, or if it be money that they've earned or position they've received and they, they lay all these things out, they do all this because their flesh needs to impress in order to get your approval so they feel good about themselves. This isn't a difficult sermon for me to preach because I, when I start sharing some of these things, anybody who has either grown up in the church, and you don't even have to grow up in the church, anybody, this is, the, this is kind of the state of the human being. It's one of the things that God came to bring us freedom. Freedom to know and to understand. The marks of spiritual slavery, he begins to tell us in verses 12 and 13, the marks of someone who is really secure in God's love will be just the opposite of this. If you want to see the marks of spiritual slavery or someone who's insecure doesn't really know the love of God, they may talk about it, they may know about it here, but to know it deeply here, there will be these kind of changes. The marks of slavery is this. People who are enslaved, who are insecure, outward appearance is more important than internal reality. Mark that one down. Outward appearance is more important than internal reality. Verse 12, the first verse. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Their focus is on what is external. It's on what's outside themselves. You could actually translate this verse literally. They desire to make an attractive showing in the flesh, in their own abilities, in their own strength. Because it's really the only realm they know how to live in, is themselves. They don't know what it means to live in the Spirit, to live fully in in a deep understanding that what defines them is God's love and and not their sin, not their ability to do good things. It's not about what's out here that defines them. It's about God and His love and the work on the cross that defines who they become. And so it's all about now an internal reality of what's happening within your heart. It's not about what's out here. But the problem of someone who doesn't know deeply God's love and isn't settled with this conviction and is boasting in a sense their life is always a boast, whether they say it or not, about the love of God. If they don't have that, it's then about outward appearance. I remember as a child uh, in, in the car with my parents and we'd be on our way to someone's house for dinner. And we, my brother and I, he, like he was nine and I was seven and my sister was like about two, so she was sitting up front, didn't have car seats then, they could sit in the front, you know, it's... Very reckless time we lived. And I, I don't know why my dad would do this, but he turned to these nine and seven-year-olds and he'd kind of go, Now, boys, how you behave will reflect on us. That's not all bad news, is it? I mean, I hope, you know, we say to the church, the way you behave reflects on what this church is right. Or, or in a business, you say to someone, you know, when you're out on that business trip, what you do reflects on us. That's a good thing. Until, until that message becomes more important than what's going on in the person's heart. That's not a bad thing until you begin to become so, more, so much more concerned about outward appearance and how people are looking at you and making a good impression that you don't care about what's going on in one's heart. 
Not knowing what's going on maybe in a, in a child's heart or in a person's heart. And all you're concerned about is modifying that behavior so there's a good impression because in reality, when it comes down to it, it's about you. I had an experience uh, with a, a guy named Robert when I was in Poland. He lives right next door to the pastor there. And he's been watching the pastor's life. And, and, and his daughter, Basha, at a certain point, she was in junior high, she um, said, Dad, I'm tired of, of the church I'm going to, which in, in Poland, the only church really is the Catholic church. And she wasn't getting anything out of it. It was rote. It was, she was bored. She didn't want to go to church anymore. He saw her rebellion, and he was not happy about that because, you know, their tradition from families, I'm talking generations back, were about being Catholic. And he was concerned about what others of his friends who were in the Catholic church might think about it if his daughter went to another church or, or didn't even go. And he was wrestling with that. And here's this guy, he himself, I don't believe, I mean, he's in this process of beginning to understand the grace of God, but the way he acted revealed his understanding even of grace. Here he was wrestling with this. He said, you know, I wrestled with it. I began to pray. He told me he prayed a number of nights in a row. And he kept calling out to God and asking God for help. And finally he said, I had this sense, this, this sense of peace. And, I, and what I realized was this, that I want my daughter to know God and I, don't, I want her to at least be in church. And so whether she goes to the Catholic Church or not, I, I figured I, I know this guy well enough, I'll kind of let her go there. And she started to go and in that process came to know the Lord. And I was just amazed and I patted on the back. I said, you gave your daughter great grace. You looked into her heart and you were more concerned about what God was going to do in her than you were about your own ability to impress everyone else around you. See, the mark of, of spiritual slavery, the mark of one who is not confident in the work and the love of God is, is this inability to really look to what's going on in the hearts of people. And when you, when you begin to get concerned more about how everything looks and the impression being made, that's a mark. There's also another mark. And it's the mark of approval of others becomes more important than acceptance by God. Approval of what others think is more important than really God's favor. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. They're motivated by, by, other, by, by, by really by fear. The only reason they do this, he says, is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They are far more concerned, not, not just to make a good impression, but the impression is being made so that other people will approve what they're doing. And, and what they're really into is what is called pain avoidance. It's what we all experience, isn't it? Deep down, we don't want to feel um, uh, the, the disapproval of someone else. We don't want to feel the disappointment and the shame. or We don't want to experience the, the tension that might come from someone who looks at us and doesn't approve. And, and so, in a, in a sense, to do that, you, you want their approval, so you avoid doing what you know is right. These people who were Jews were going from village to village because they knew that if they talked about the cross of Christ and they talked about the work of God and they lived in that, they knew they would suffer persecution. They knew they would receive beatings. They knew they would be cast out by many of their Jewish spiritual friends. And so Paul says, not only is there this desire to impress and go around and try and constrain people to live that way, devoid of what's going on in a person's heart, their next desire is through through that fear, is to begin to go around and to avoid disapproval so that they might find approval and feel better about themselves. And again, their security isn't in God. It's really in what other people think. 
And the mark of spiritual slavery is when approval of others becomes far more important than God's approval. Being accepted by others becomes more important than doing what you know is right. Because sometimes doing what you know is right could cause others to criticize you or to judge you or to condemn you or to disprove you. And Paul warns, don't become imprisoned by seeking to measure up to someone else's spiritual rules. Live free. You ever wonder what Paul's life was like before he met Jesus? In Galatians, he tells us. He says at one point in Galatians 1.10, Paul says, if I were still trying to please man. His life was all about the approval of other people, not the acceptance, not the, the, the sense of God. What are you calling me to do? What is it that I'm to do here? What is the loving thing to do? What is the right thing to do? Regardless of what anyone else would think. Some of the questions that I encourage you to, to wrestle with. The ones that enslave you, that you need to work through, are questions like this. What will so-and-so think of me if I do this? And I challenge you to start asking this question. What would Jesus think about this? Or will others approve of this rather than, is this something God approves of? Or the question that I think when you're, you're, you're stuck on a need of others to show you approval, does this look bad rather than, is this good? Is it right? Is it loving? Here's a good question to ask. Is God's spirit prompting in leading me in this? If you want to go down a list of questions that I think are really good to ask anytime you come into that place where you're starting to say you're wrestling with fear because you don't want to be disapproved and you sense, is this what God wants me to do? Here's some great questions to ask. Is God's spirit prompting in leading me to do this? Does this violate a truth in God's word? What do the counsel of other mature, grace-filled believers think on this matter? Is it loving? Chuck Swindoll gives this advice. He says, stop seeking the favor of everyone. This may be a stubborn habit to break, but it is really worth all the effort you can muster. If you're in a group where you feel you're being coerced to do certain things that are against your conscience or you're being pressured to stop doing things that you see no problem with, get out of the group. You're unwise to stay in situations where your conscience tells you it is not right. That is nothing more than serving men, not God. I don't care how spiritual sounding it may be. Stop seeking the favor of everybody. And there's a third mark of what I call spiritual slavery. Or a person who's insecure doesn't really know the deep love of God in their heart and, and that love informs them so that it's not about making impressions. It's not about trying to get your approval or someone else's approval. There's a third mark, and that mark really is rooted in pride. It's all about spiritual performance. The third mark is this. Personal performance is more important than God's work. Verse 13. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. And here's the irony of it all. They want you to live this life that is self-defeating, that in this life, it is a life where they say get circumcised and, and they were using in order to try and not be persecuted by these other Jews. They were asking them to walk this life of trying hard to please God and impress God and in doing so impressing other people's living in approval, being bound by what everything else outside you is telling you rather than the voice of God. 
And he says, these people come along, and the irony of it is they can't even do that perfectly. They're asking you to live this life where you have to live in this perfection, and you're being intimidated by people, and you're trying to walk your life according to what everybody else's rules are, and you're trying to so hard to, to do that, somehow thinking that that's going to bring the life of God. And all it does is bring deadness. All it leads to, he says, is really a life of hell. Literally. He says, no, there's a better way. There's a way where you walk with God, where you begin to hear God. And as you walk with God, you you begin to know the love of God being established in your heart because it's not about what you've done. You're not defined by the things you've done, the sin you've done. In an acknowledgement of your sin and and a calling out upon God, when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, because that's why he says in verse 14, I don't boast in anything but the cross. When you begin to do that and you begin to understand that and this love begins to define you, you begin to walk in the freedom. You hear the voice of God. It's the walk that brings the power of God. It's the walk that brings the joy of God. It's the walk that brings the peace of God. Because you have one audience and only one, and that is God Himself. You're not concerned. It's not that you're not loving and you don't pay attention to and you don't care for other people. Not at all. In fact, that life, that life of love, people ask sometimes. In fact, when I was in Poland and I was sharing the gospel, with an individual. They asked me, so then why do you want to be good? The problem with grace, folks, is it's risky. Because what happens with grace, you're not going to control people with rules and all these kind of regulations. What you do is in grace, you just say, here's the truth of God, like Jesus said. It's in His Word. And as you begin to know that and understand it, you now begin to listen to God and walk in His love. And it's risky because it calls for maturity. It calls for a life of freedom. And if you have truly been loved by God, you cannot help but love other people. If you have really experienced the forgiveness of God, this is what Jesus said, you cannot help but begin to offer that forgiveness to others. If you can't, let's say forgiveness, that bitterness will eat you up. That bitterness will show that you don't know even the great forgiveness of God. That's what Jesus said. So as you begin to experience the kindness of God, you want to be kind. When you experience His patience after you have done things time and again, you've failed again and again, God continually... Like, you know, the disciples, Jesus kept, you know, you kind of go, when are they going to get it? And I think God says it about all of us, right? But you begin to experience His patience, and you can't help them to begin patience to others. And so, He says it's not about performance. Those spiritual marks are all, when you get to verse 14, um, those marks that He sets out are all um, wiped away by this verse when you look at 14. The means of spiritual freedom is the cross. A life that brings the deep, settled love and inner spiritual confidence, the maturity, the fruits of the Spirit, God's power, is one that boasts in the cross. Because at the cross and in the cross is God's forgiveness. We are defined by Him. We live by Him. We walk by Him. It's all about Him. It's not about what I've done. It's not about what I'm going to do. It's not about any of these things. It's all about His love beginning to reside so deeply within me, so fully within me, that who else could I boast about? Man, never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, to which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's basically saying, when I was, when on the cross, I began, I realized at that point that the love of God was displayed through Jesus Christ for me. At that point, I died to this whole life of insecurity, of seeking to impress people and seeking to get people's approval and seeking to live according to my 
own ability and wisdom and strength. I died to it all, and a whole new life, a whole new creation was, was started in me. And this whole new creation, this whole new life began to respond to the love and the grace and the goodness of God. And that love and that grace and that goodness of God began to develop in me like fruit. And that fruit became joy, and that fruit became peace, and that fruit became patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And these things all began to develop in my life because of the love of God pouring into me. Because I was now concerned not of trying to get approval of others, but only to live under the approval of God. I was now concerned not trying to impress others, but only living in a sense to impress this God who loved me. I was now concerned to say, God, it is not my abilities, but everything that I have, every ability that I have is because of what you have done for me through Jesus Christ. And so he goes, it doesn't matter. It's not about some religious ritual, some circumcision or an uncircumcision. Neither of those mean a bit of difference. What counts is a new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. And I like, I like what he says in verse 17. He, he ends it by, by saying, finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You could paraphrase it this way. In closing, I don't want to be bothered about these disputes any longer. It's settled. It's done. The marks that matter are the result of your faith expressing itself through love. The kind of marks that I've experienced, says Paul, like stonings and floggings and beatings and nails on a hand and spears in a side and a cross and, and not some empty ceremonial institutional observance. The mark is love. The mark is the kind of love that begins to show itself as you give yourself to others and as you, you faithfully, as God prompts you to give your money to some kind of cause. And you may never even see the results of that, but you give it faithfully. That's the mark of love. It's the mark of love that says, I will faithfully maybe lead a small group and I will give time and I won't ever maybe, I'll, I'll, I'm sacrificing other things. The mark is the love that I'm giving so that I can see other people grow in Christ. The mark is this, that in your workplace, you may have a situation where you've got to compromise. And in love for God, you say, God, I'm not concerned about whether my boss approves of me. I'm not concerned about making this kind of impression. I am more concerned that you love me and I do what is right and I know what is loving and I'll do that even at the cost of a promotion. That might be a mark. That's the mark. It's the mark that says I will love God and I will love others. And the mark is of God. And the only way that we experience this kind of love and know this kind of grace is through Jesus and through his cross and the experience of that. That's the ticket. I was, um, a number of years ago, when the Timberwolves first came to town, someone gave me some tickets to go to the Timberwolf game, and I, I thought, well, it'd be cool. And I, I didn't look at the tickets till the night of the game, and I look at the tickets in their first row, front row seats in the middle right next to where Jimmy Jam used to sit. I'm, I'm going, this is, this is way too cool. I'm walking down the stands. This is before they are in the Target Center. And I'm walking down the stands, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to get kicked out of this. I don't deserve this. Someone's going to be up on me, and they're going to come down. I, I just, I'm sitting there thinking, someone's going to get me. I mean, we were so close. We were playing the Portland Trailblazers. Kevin Duckworth, this huge guy at one time, comes you know, right down the sidelines, and he gets pushed out. He's falling right into my wife, and like the courageous person I am, I, I jumped away. And I prayed for her. Um, 
But I had this incredible feeling that, you know, I wasn't Jimmy Jam. I wasn't a guy who came every, every game that they knew me. There was nothing in me that could get me to that seat. And I'm sitting there thinking, they're going to kick me out. Until it occurred to me, and I started playing with the ticket, and I thought to myself, if anyone comes, I'm just going to show them this ticket. I can be so secure, I can, I can actually get up and go and get something to drink. I was afraid to lose my seat. Every benefit of this place is mine, and I started to get confident. And I sat there a little more proud. And it wasn't because of me, it was because this simple ticket gave me everything. And that's what Paul is saying again and again. Folks, this life, the reason we do all this stuff, it's not coming to church. It's not, it's not because we get some kind of brownie point. It's all about knowing this God of love and this God of love transforming our heart. And it's all about the fact that everything that we have in this life is in Jesus. It's like that ticket. And when you get knowing that and you become confident in that and you begin to understand this incredible love of God, you don't need to impress anybody. You don't need anyone's approval. You don't need to look at your own works to do a thing. That's the gospel. And, and one of the reasons we sang a lot of hymns today is some of the old hymn writers, they know this so well. I'm going to ask the team to come forward, and I'll let Brett share in a moment uh, this hymn. But I want you to know that God wants you to live in His grace. He wants to establish so deeply in you the roots of love that you walk in this world with freedom to live out everything, every prompting He places in you, regardless of what anyone else thinks, because He has set you free.